Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, Communications Manager at MLI, and today I'm joined by MLI Senior Fellow and the Director of our new Canada in the Indo-Pacific Initiative, Jonathan Berkshire Miller. MLI just launched this dedicated initiative, led by Jonathan, to expand our work on the Indo-Pacific and to provide greater guidance and clarity for policymakers in search of a coherent approach to the region. So Jonathan, maybe you can get us started off by explaining precisely what the Indo-Pacific is and how it's distinct from concepts like Asia-Pacific. Well, thanks a lot, Brett, and uh, and thanks for doing this. As you noted, the McDonnell-Laurie Institute's really happy to launch this Canada the Indo-Pacific initiative. And I think it's a culmination of a lot of thinking uh, that the Institute has been doing, but also a culmination of thinking from Canada and a lot of like-minded partners on how to conceptualize this region. As you referenced, Brett, you know, originally, I think Canada has been attached itself to this notion of the Asia-Pacific. And I think we're not saying here that you cannot no longer use the words Asia-Pacific and that when referring to this region, everything must be Indo-Pacific. But I think we've seen a sea change in a number of different areas. And this is why the Indo-Pacific concept, I think, has been so important. So a couple of those, I mean, if you think about the origin of this concept and, and what exactly it means and how it differs from the Asia-Pacific concept. First of all, I think that the intellectual origins of this have come from some of our like-minded partners like Japan and India, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, several years back, actually, in 2006-07, I went to India and talked about a confluence of seas, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And I think many of the tensions and conflicts that we see now in this region are in the maritime domain. We see this quite clearly in the South China Sea and with Taiwan the East China Sea, and other areas. But I think with this initiative, we're not focusing only on one thematic area. So security, of course, is very important. Maritime security is very important. But in addition to the conflicts, uh, this region also is a great potential for economic reasons. And I think Canada now has joined the Comprehensive Partnership on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So there's several different areas that uh, we're going to prioritize going forward on this initiative. Sounds fantastic. And one thing that I think is distinct there is that some of these challenges in the region are seemingly all connected to uh, seas bordering China. To what extent does China play a role in the Indo-Pacific? And how does MLI's initiative perhaps differ from some of our work on China, as I know that the the work in the Indo-Pacific is certainly broader than just the China issue. Well, I think China clearly is a part of the Indo-Pacific. They're a part of the region. But I think one of the challenges is they are not the region. And I think this is one of the things when thinking about Canadian thinking on the region for the past 10, 15 years, is I think there's been a natural sort of enticement on the potentials of the Chinese market, trade opportunities, investment opportunities. I don't think we're saying, and I don't think we've ever said that we should completely dismiss that option or those opportunities. But I think what we are saying and, and what we're trying to approach to this initiative and our promotion of Canada's more robust approach to the Indo-Pacific is that this engagement with China needs to be done with our eyes wide open and managing many of the risks that China proposes. Some of those are, and many of those on the economic side and many of those on the security side. Uh, so if China wants to play by the rules that are set out in the region, uh, whether they be on trade, we referenced before sort of the gold standard of new trade agreements, which is the TPP-11, or whether it's on security following international norms and international laws, then I think Canada and other nations would welcome China in that community. So it's not an exclusive community by its nature. But again, it's a community and a concept that I think should be based on shared values and shared interests. 
speaking of those shared values and shared interests, you made reference to the concept of the Indo-Pacific being initiated in large part by Japan. And Japan is obviously one of those like-minded partners. Which other partners uh, do we have in the region? Which ones are like-minded and perhaps our natural allies? And which other partners might not be quite as aligned with us in terms of their values and how they engage with the international order, but are nonetheless potential partners? Do you want to maybe give a rundown of some of those countries in the regions and the opportunities therein? Many of them are some of our most traditional partners. So, I mean, I think if you think about countries in the region that have been developing Indo-Pacific strategies, of course, I think first and foremost, you think of the United States, uh, you think of Japan, you think of India and Australia. I think all of them are important partners for Canada and all of them will be important partners for Canada when they continue to evolve uh, their approach to this region. It should not be exclusive only to these four that are referenced often as the Quad. Canada also has a very strong relationship with South Korea. There's many opportunities in addition in the relationship with Taiwan, I think an underexplored relationship that Canada has. But in addition to these bilateral relationships, I think it's really important to remember that our ties in Southeast Asia remain very, very important to this concept. So Canada is not in many multilateral clubs in East Asia. East Asia doesn't have the political security architecture that the transatlantic community has, for example, with NATO. But one of the ones that we are on in is the ASEAN Regional Forum as a dialogue partner. I think we do want to become more involved in the ASEAN-related fora. ASEAN, by its nature, has its challenges, but I think those member states, several of which we are now engaged with through the Trans-Pacific Partnership, also face many of these similar challenges, economic challenges through the Belt and Road Initiative, as security challenges through the South China Sea. When we think about this region, we have to be pretty expansive on the different members and partners that we work with. In addition, I would say that when we think of the Indo-Pacific, I don't think we should necessarily be too constrained by a geographical definition. So there are other players outside of what I guess normal people would think of the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific that are now heavily engaged in this region. For example, the Dutch now have an Indo-Pacific strategy, the French do, the UK is looking at this, the Germans do also. So I think our traditional transatlantic friends are also looking very closely at this region and provide a natural partnership for Canada. Yeah, it seems that Canada has a lot of inroads and potential partners to work with, as well as a number of multilateral groups that they can hitch their wagon to, to some extent. But what I noticed and am concerned about with Canada and its engagement in the world is that so often it seems that Canada is engaging multilaterally for the sake of engaging multilaterally without much of a coherent strategy in terms of what Canada wants to get out of that engagement. What solutions are there for this kind of persistent issue in Canada's approach to the world? How do we break out of seeing multilateralism as an end in and of itself and start seeing it rather as a means to an end. Well, I think that's a really good point. I think that one of the things that I've been advocating for a while, and I think others at the Institute have been advocating, is that when we look at this region, and frankly, I don't think this is limited to the Indo-Pacific alone, but we need to really carefully think about what I would refer to as the vehicles of engagement. I think Canada traditionally has been attached, potentially even enamored to its multilateralist approach. It's not to say that we shouldn't be engaging multilaterally. I think we talked about some of the four that were already engaged in the region, APEC, uh, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, the ASEAN Regional Forum, the Asian Development Bank, which I think will be an increasingly important multilateral for us to engage in. But it's necessary, but not sufficient. And I think that we've noticed over the years that just showing up to some of these multilateral institutions in the region, which are not as comprehensive as I referenced before, as those covering the transatlantic community, does not represent a comprehensive engagement in this region. So how do we supplement that? And I think there's two real ways that we look at it. Number one is kind of going back to the basics of the bilateral relationships. So making sure that the focal point of our engagement in this region is not 
purely multilateral. So we were able to engage with many of these countries at APEC and at the ASEAN Regional Forum. That's not quite sufficient. I think we really need to bolster our bilateral diplomacy in the region. And the second area, I think, is what I would refer to as minilateral. So working with like-minded states, whether it's trilaterally, quadrilaterally, in larger groups, on issues that are important to Canada. To give you one example of this, the U.S., Japan, and Canada undertake each year a trilateral naval exercise off the coast of Japan. So this is just one example of building our defense relationships and our security relationships in the region that can be done in minilateral ways. It need not always be pronged on cooperation with the U.S. I think the U.S. is an important partner there, but I think we should explore other potential partnerships. For example, maybe Canada, Japan, Australia, or Canada, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. There are a number of different uh, iterations we could look at. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to dig in a little bit to some of the thematic opportunities and issues that are present in the region. And I wanted to get your thoughts as to how Canada could tackle each one of these challenges or what perhaps Canada has to offer. As a fairly large economy, but a smaller player on the security front, we sometimes are pretty cozy in how we look at the world and engage with it and fairly conservative in our approach. But as I understand it, the Indo-Pacific poses a number of very specific opportunities for Canada. So the first I wanted to really dig into is trade and investments. To what extent would Canada expanding its role and engagement in the Indo-Pacific reap some economic benefits for our country? I think it very much will. I think the TPP 11 is a great starting point. But a couple points of caution, I think, is that traditionally, as I said, I think we've overly focused on this trade investment lens. I think it's been the lens that has driven our engagement into the region and sometimes has sort of blinded us to the broader security challenges in this region. I think that's particularly acute with the China relationship over the past 10 years. So I think we need to be cautious about getting that balance right. The second thing is I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership is an excellent entry gateway to this, but it is a gateway. And I think this is an important point that if we think that because we're in this significant multilateral arrangement in the region, that it's sort of mission accomplished on trade, I think we would be sorely mistaken. I think the TPP-11 is only as good as it's implemented, as it's promoted to our private sector, to our businesses and enterprises that are engaged or interested to engage in this region. So we have to show them the comparative advantage that we now have through this agreement. And I think additionally to that, we need to see that trade dynamics, especially multilateral trade dynamics, are evolving in this region outside of the trans specific partnership. We've seen, while it is a less ambitious trade agreement, it's still significant in its own right, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which includes many of the same players from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but also notably involves China, amongst others. This is another mega trade agreement in this region. So there is competition. And that, I think, leads me to the point that I think Canada should be a more forceful proponent on the expansion of trade agreements. And I think Trans-Pacific Partnership is very focal point for this. There's a number of different states and partners that could work in this regard. I think South Korea is a very good example of one uh, potential addition. Taiwan is another potential addition. The Philippines, and even, as I said before, going beyond this traditional Indo-Pacific geographic limitation and looking at countries such as the UK and potentially others in Europe. There's obviously lots on the trade and investment front. And like you say, the caution and caveat to it is that it can't just be trade and investment for the sake of doing so. and rather needs to be hitched to some extent to some of the other issues at play. The next one that I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on is energy and climate change. As the region is still a region of rapid development, the energy needs of the region are expanding. And Canada happens to be extremely well situated insofar as we are a bit of an energy superpower. 
yet we haven't been able to meaningfully export those energy products, predominantly in the form of oil and natural gas. We haven't been able to export those in a significant fashion to the region, even though there's perhaps a demand at present and certainly a demand in the future for these resources. I wanted to get your thoughts first on how energy plays. And the other side to that coin is, of course, climate, where a number of these countries are still dependent on high emitting sources of energy generation. Is there a role that Canada could play with regards to our goals and priorities on climate change in working with countries in the region? Well, I think the energy piece is a really important element, and I think it's going to be an important part going forward of how we look at this sort of comprehensive sketch of Canada's engagement in the region. Obviously, there's the high-level trade and security issues, but I think the energy piece is very crucial. And if you think about some of our key partners, and even those that we've had challenged relationships in the recent years, China being first and foremost, all of them, and I think of the three key Northeast Asian economies, South Korea, China, and Japan, all of them heavily rely on energy sources from the Middle East. You know, I can't think of the exact numbers right now, but especially Japan and South Korea, upwards of 80 to 85% of their energy needs are coming from a handful of countries in the Gulf. That's not something that they feel overly comfortable about. Not only is there potential issues in the future of political stability, but also traversing the seas where this energy has to go through, goes through a number of what we call choke points. And one of them, as we referenced before, is through the South China Sea and through the Malacca Strait. Again, I think there's additional geopolitical stress and potential tensions on those supply chains. So I think this has led many countries in the region, and I think in particular countries such as South Korea and Japan, to look at alternative sources of energy, and Canada is first and foremost there. I think there's a couple prongs of opportunity here too. First of all, I think these are reliable partners and very good future markets for our energy supplies, but also there's an investment window here. Both South Korean and Japanese companies, amongst other countries, have been investing in opportunities for Canada to move its energy to the West Coast and then eventually to their markets. So they've been very, very patient over the past several years and maintained many of their investments, but they can't be patient forever. So I think we do need to figure out a way to come to a sort of a compromise and make sure that we can take advantage of number one, our resources, but also partnerships and partners who are wanting some of these resources. And just a quick note on the climate change component. Do you see that factoring in as well? Yeah, so that's another good point. I think this is a shift that's also happening amongst, frankly, all of the economies in East Asia, but especially, again, with some of our partners. And I think, obviously, there's going to be opportunities in this multilateral diplomacy realm to talk on climate change. But again, I also think from a trade and investment side, this presents a real interesting opportunity. And I think particularly on clean tech, green tech, I think that there's companies and businesses in the private sector on both sides who have some very good areas for collaboration. So I think this is something when we're thinking about some of those opportunities we talked about before with the Trans-Pacific Partnership and some of our investment agreements with countries such as Japan and South Korea, we should really be promoting this side of climate change as well as the trade investment side. So we've spoken quite a bit about some of the opportunities there, largely economic, but nonetheless opportunities for multilateralism, even bilateral engagement. I wanted to speak now a little bit about some of the threats in the region and why those matter to Canada. Uh, the first, it would be security. So to what extent are there security challenges in the region at present? To what extent will these challenges expand? I know that, of course, the elephant in the room is China, but are there security threats and issues that Canada ought to be aware of and ought to be considering seriously that it's currently not on the radar with regards to the Indo-Pacific? Well, I think there are definitely a range of security issues that absolutely directly impact Canada. And I think 
One of the challenges over the past 10, 20 years when Canada thinks of Asia, you know, again, with the caveat that we have our own history in Asia, and especially when I think of the Korean Peninsula, Canada remains one of the UN command countries and did send soldiers to Korea during the Korean conflict. So we have our own history there. Until recently, we had the deputy commander posts at UN command in Korea. So we, we do have our own sort of legacies here. That being said, I think there has been this tendency over the past several decades when we're thinking about Asian security issues to effectively look at those in the rubric of the U.S. alliance. And basically, these are broader U.S. foreign policy interests, U.S. foreign policy concerns, security concerns of U.S. allies in the region. But Canada does not have a direct dog in the hunt. Uh, I've argued that this isn't really a, a great argument. I mean, if you think about a number of the different challenges, and I mean, there's a laundry list of tripwires, I would call them, from the Taiwan Straits, which I think is increasingly becoming a very volatile situation. The situation on the Korean Peninsula, obviously, with North Korea's nuclear weapons program, some of the maritime disputes that we see, not just limited to the South China Sea, but China and Japan also have a dispute in the East China Sea. And then if we go further abroad, we have issues, longstanding issues, obviously, between India and Pakistan. There's a range of different security issues. When thinking about security too, I think our thinking needs to change a little bit because these are, I guess, what many would refer to as more traditional security issues. But I think we're seeing the potential for different conflicts coming up. I think one area, for example, in the South China Sea is not always focused on territory, but one of the largest conflicts now is on fishing, fishing rights and fish stocks, whose maritime zone they fall within. So this is one key area to think about but also infrastructure. The deployment of infrastructure now with geopolitical motivations also puts another sort of security lens on things. The thinking on security in this region, I think, is evolving. And I think in order to respond to that, I think we need to have a much more comprehensive look at it. And what role does Canada play with regards to security, given that we are a little bit on the smaller side relative to the size of our economy in terms of our ability to actually have a presence in these areas? So for instance, Canada has in the past set frigates to sail through the Taiwan Strait as freedom of the seas operations. We've participated to some extent in exercises that are ongoing in the region, particularly with the United States, but also with other partners. To what extent do we actually have the capacity to really contribute to some of these security challenges insofar as working with our allies and defending our shared interests? Well, that's a really good point. And I think it's a point that's often referenced when we talk about security issues in the region and what Canada could potentially do. My response usually is we don't need to be, not only do we not need need to be what we're not able to be partners such as the United States. I mean, not only do we not have the alliance relationships, but we don't have the military force posture to do the same things that the United States does. Frankly, we don't have the same ability to do things that countries such as Australia or Japan do as well. When thinking about security and defense, it doesn't all need to be limited to what the Royal Canadian Navy is doing in the region. I think they're doing some very important things in the region. But I think the defense diplomacy side is very important. And one example I often point back to is the timeliness of of diplomacy on some of these security issues and making sure not to sort of back into statements or be the last one of the G7 or like-minded countries in the region to sort of call out certain provocations. One example I think about was in 2013 when China declared an air defense identification zone in the East China Sea, quite a provocative move overlapping Japan's air defense identification zone. And at that point, there were a lot of tensions over the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. Canada's eventual statement on it was quite sound, 
But it, the problem was the timeliness of it. The reason I reference things like this is that the cost of this is very little. I mean, this is something that whether it's just not putting a priority on getting these press statements out or making sure that we have a principled diplomatic voice on it, that can be done at a very low cost. And it's a choice. With regard to some of the defense issues, I do think we have to think about prioritization and where we're allocating some of our defense resources. And I think that discussion is already happening, especially with the Defense Department. But we should not forget the diplomacy side, because I think it fits right in with the defense side. And I think it's very important for Canada to start taking a lead on some of these issues and not necessarily waiting to be the last one to comment. That ties nicely into this final thematic area I wanted to chat about. Another one where Canada seems to be a bit of a laggard or perhaps, again, too conservative in its approach is with regards to values and the maintenance of the international world order. So we see that there are also human rights challenges in the region, not just challenges uh, posed by some of the more aggressive countries, the countries that give us more grief more often, but also some of our partner countries have human rights concerns as well. Beyond that too, Canada has a vested interest in ensuring that democracies remain stable and secure, and not every country or partner in the region necessarily shares our approach towards democracy and liberal values. So to what extent does that play a role in the Indo-Pacific? How should Canada seek to impart our values to the extent that it's possible in the region and defend certain values such as human rights when they are challenged? On the question of values, while they're uh, separate in many ways from interests, I think that they're also absolutely integrated. And I think this is something that we've seen increasingly over the past 10, 15, 20 years, the idea that you could have a set of values and you put them aside and you have a set of interests and you put them aside. I don't think that really works in the same way. I don't know, frankly, if it ever really worked, but I think that notion, I think, has been put to rest. And I think in particular, that's the case in Asia. I think one of the challenges that we have on this is making the hard choices, frankly. I think that when it comes to human rights, rights issues, I think Canada has been pretty good in some cases, but I think we've been very selective on which cases we choose. And I think the cases that we choose are often the more risk averse choices. So I think that we need to be much more consistent in that approach. I think which I do see as a positive sign coming recently from the government is I think we're working much more closely with some of our traditional partners on some of these value issues and promotion of democracy. In particular, I think of some of the statements that have come out on Hong Kong that we're working closely with you know, Kingdom, Australia, and the United States. I think we need to do more of that. And frankly, I think we need to lead more of this as well. That I think is going to be very important. So consistency is key. Again, I think it's fine if we go to the Philippines or Myanmar and criticize them on human rights issues, which I think is merited in many cases. But we also have to be consistent and do the same thing when we go to Beijing. So I think that would be my main point on that. Yes, unfortunately, Canada seems to have an approach which, while largely good, <laughs> lacks the, the courage necessary, perhaps, to really defend those values. So I wanted to just get any kind of final and concluding thoughts from you with respect to how the Indo-Pacific should factor into policymaking. So we've made the case that it's important. We've articulated some of the ideas around how Canada could engage or should engage. So what would be your advice or takeaway to policymakers, if they're listening, as to how they can right the ship and get things back on track in the Indo-Pacific? 
Well, what I would say to why the Indo-Pacific is a little bit different, I think many might point to the fact that why wouldn't there be a similar focus on the, the transatlantic community or Americas or Africa? And nobody's saying that we shouldn't be focusing on those regions. But I think why the Indo-Pacific concept has been so important is number one, the region, but number two, the countries that are in that region. When we talk in economic terms, we have the world's largest economies. I think we highlighted some of the security challenges that are happening in this region. This is the consequential region right now, but it will be even more consequential in the coming decades. Frankly, we cannot duck and cover for some of the problems and concerns that will come in this region. And we can't duck and cover and wouldn't want to duck and cover from some of the opportunities in this region. So when we talk about some of the things under the hood of an Indo-Pacific strategy, whether it's a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy or another strategy, we're talking about these interests and values that frankly could apply to many of the other regions that we engage in, a rules-based order, free and open investment and infrastructure, liberal trade practices, promotion of human rights and democracy. So these are not limited to the Indo-Pacific, but I think what defines the Indo-Pacific is a little bit different as this really is the litmus case for maintaining that order that is going to be so relevant to our engagement everywhere else in the world. So this, to me, is why we need to work very closely to make sure that we have a robust strategy. And I think the last take-home point is that it absolutely cannot be done alone. I think Canada should have its own voice. It shouldn't necessarily just be a follower to other countries' Indo-Pacific approaches. But I think we really, really need to prioritize working with our partners on this. And I think, as we referenced in a few of the questions earlier, this need not always be through multilateral for, but I think we really need to focus on what partners have the closest shared interests and values with us and making sure that we find the opportunities to synergize those partnerships. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. And for those listening, make sure to check out the Canada and the Indo-Pacific Initiative just launched by the McDonald laurie Institute, run by Jonathan Berkshire Miller, who's a senior fellow as well as the director of that program at MLI. Thanks again so much, Jonathan. Thank you. 